Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome along to the very first Drive Nation podcast, something we've been threatening to do for a little while. But given everything that's going on at the moment this COVID-19 situation, we've decided now is probably a good time to see if we can get the DN podcast off the ground. I'm Dan Prosser, co-founder of Drive Nation, co-host of this podcast. Now, there's a lot of housekeeping stuff that I want to get through explaining what this podcast is going to be all about, the format of it and all that stuff. But none of it's more important than introducing to you my Drive Nation co-host and co-founder, Andrew Frankel. Uh, hello, one and all. I am indeed Andrew Frankel, and I'm very glad that you are currently tuned into our first podcast. Um, we are flying a bit blind here. Uh, it's not something I've done a lot of, um, but you know, given that we have time on our hands, um, and given that it is, as Dan says, something that we have really wanted to do for quite a while, um, hopefully it'll be worthwhile. Hopefully we will tell you a few things you maybe, maybe didn't know, hopefully be a, a little bit entertaining, and hopefully you won't get too bored too soon. Strange times at the moment, I would say. This COVID-19 situation, it's, it's cancelling events left, right and centre. It's having an impact on every industry you can imagine. But it's probably given us time to sit down and, and have a go at this. We're being very careful. We're three metres apart. No handshakes. No symptoms. Not yet. Not Early yet. days. <laughs> so we're, we're taking precautions. As has been mentioned already, this very much is... A, a trial run. It's a pilot episode of the DM podcast. We're using borrowed equipment and we're indebted to our friend Neil Carey for that. Neil, when we're allowed back in the pubs, you've got several beers coming your way. Um, we would like the DM podcast to become a regular thing. The, the response to this pilot podcast will give us some idea if there's any appetite for a more regular podcast. So please do get in touch with us if you've listened to this and you thought it wasn't completely terrible. If you'd like to hear more, we will record more. Yeah, I'd also say, yeah, we are, we, we are always, as in the stuff that we write, we are always open to um, ideas. Um, I think probably the single greatest joy that DM brings Dan and me um, is the interaction that we have with you guys. Um, and I do mean that entirely sincerely. It's why we do try to get back to um, you know, a large number of all the stuff that you post, because quite often, frankly, it's more interesting than the stuff that we write. Um, so if there are themes, if there are ideas, subjects, whatever, that you would like to hear us uh, extemporise about on a slightly longer, broader format than is possible within uh, the confines of Instagram, then, you know, please tell us. Um, we'll have a look at it and we'll get, you know, time is not a limit here. So one way or the other, we'll get through of it as much of it as we can. Um, Andrew, we're sat in one of your front rooms. One of the many front rooms. <laughs> And one of the, the ways in which I was going to get this conversation onto cars is to ask you about the car or cars you've got parked outside. At the moment, I can only see a Golf. You can only see a Golf. Okay, that's interesting. Um, yes, that's because um, test cars aren't exactly um, <laughs> to a penny at the moment. Um, I don't have any other test cars at the moment. And um, yeah, so the Golf is my wife's Golf. Um, it's our family runabout. Um, I do have a shed with a few... Um, old, unimportant things in it. Um, uh, my daughter probably is in her Toyota Igo at the moment. Um, and yeah, that's about it. So 
we're all well aware of the coronavirus situation at the moment. Now, you weren't supposed to be here this week. No, I wasn't. No, I was meant to be, uh, I was meant to be in America. I was meant to be driving the 911 Turbo, um, which probably would have been fun because it involved uh, Monterey and Laguna Seca and skidding around one of America's annoyingly large number of fantastic racetracks. Um, but in fact, oh, I, I find myself sitting here stuck in the room talking to you, but there you go. Right. Now, let me quickly, before we get stuck into it, let me explain what I want the format of this podcast to be. Now, I tend to prefer free-flowing or sort of rambling discussions. I prefer that podcast format to a very structured, heavily formatted one. And, and so that's what we're going to aim for, albeit with a certain degree of structure to it, not too much. I think what I want the, ch- the first chunk of the podcast to be is a, just a chat, a free-flowing chat about the latest goings-on, that, whether that's motorsport or new cars or news or, or whatever it is. I think I want the first sort of 20 minutes or so to be Andrew and I just chatting rubbish about the latest, the latest goings-on. After that, there will be another section of the podcast, a distinct section of the podcast, um, which I think actually could be quite interesting. Now, presumably, if you've stumbled upon this podcast, it's because you know about Drive Nation and you know what Drive Nation is. If you don't, let me briefly explain. Andrew and I like to think of it as a digital car magazine that exists only on Instagram. So we do everything that a, a, a car magazine website would do, but we package it in a way that suits Instagram and it's short form and it's bite size and our readers seem to enjoy what we do. We post car reviews, reviews of older cars, car news, opinions, interviews, features, all of that stuff. If you haven't seen Drive Nation on Instagram, please go and have a look. It's at Drive Nation underscore. Andrew, what's your elevator pitch for DN? Um, I think it's, you know, looking at Instagram as, you know, one of the largest media platforms out there. And there is, until we came along, there was absolutely nobody doing what I may loosely refer to as proper car journalism on it. Um, and you're kind enough to ask me for my pitch. As, as, as people probably don't know, um, Drive Nation was entirely Dan's idea. Um, and he very kindly came to me with it uh, and asked me what I thought of it. And I just, as a person who's been doing this for I think genuinely longer than Dan's been alive um, and someone who was brought up very much in the traditions um, of motoring journalism I mean the first stories I ever wrote I wrote on a thing called a typewriter Um, and I just liked the idea of broadening my horizons a bit frankly um, doing something that's a bit different I mean I've written lots of magazine stories I've written a few books um, but in fact the discipline of doing something like Drive Nation you know, every single day, but also writing to that length uh, and doing it in such a way that you know, every single um, text page that you see um, you know, ends with a full stop. Nothing ever runs over. It's, a, it's an interesting discipline. Um, it's quite difficult to write about cars in a way that is hopefully informative, hopefully entertaining, while sticking to that length. But it's, it is, as I said, it is a great discipline. Um, it's a good challenge. And so far, at least, from the numbers of you who have um, joined up and are kind enough to follow what we do and comment on what we say, um, it seems to be working. Exactly that. So, yeah, I think we apply good, old-fashioned, rigorous car journalism to Instagram and have fun while doing it. And I think, broadly, that's what I want the podcast to be as well. And so the second section of the podcast is going to be Andrew and I discussing the previous week's most popular Drive Nation posts in a bit more detail. And I think that will that will work really nicely. It'll mean that the the podcast is varied. It'll mean that it's topical. Um, There'll be lots of depth in there. Um, So, again, let us know what you think of that idea. Once you've listened to this podcast, if you feel like you want to get in touch, please let us know whether or not you think that's a good idea. First part of the podcast, though, is we're going to do a little bit of a news chat. Now, we're in this weird paradoxical situation where there is no car news except for the biggest news of the year, which is this whole COVID-19 outbreak. I mean, Andrew, have you ever experienced anything like this? No, I don't think any of us have. I mean, I think you know, the only thing it can be compared to is, um, is the war. Um, not even I'm old enough to... Um, to remember that no I think within the sort of living out adult lifetimes of almost all of us it is 
the biggest, um, for want of a better word, catastrophe that has befallen us. And let, let's hope that that's the way that it that it remains, and that nothing even more horrendous comes along. As as for the industry, um, you know, I know it's terribly doom and gloom at the moment. Um, and as we are recording this, you know, it seems to me that certainly every day, almost sometimes every hour, some new catastrophic piece of information about uh, further restrictions to what we can and cannot do comes out. Um, you know, I think it's very easy to get very down in the mouth about this. Um, and I think what will, I think two things will happen. Firstly, there will become quite shortly a new normal, which will be less terrifying and more profoundly boring. Um, when most of us just find ourselves unable to do um, what we need to do. Obviously, lots of people are going to be struggling to earn livings as well, um, which is going to be worrying for, I mean, particularly for motoring journalists, and I'm sure lots of other people in the industry as well as other industries, because, you know, motoring journalists, unless you're, you know, you're very big and on the telly, um, you're never going to earn, you'll have a great time, but you're never going to earn a huge amount of money doing it. So, you know, that's an interesting challenge, but everybody's got those challenges. Um, but, you know, I think and I hope that in time it will start to improve and life will return to normal. And I think the big question is, is that once life has returned to normal, how changed is it? Mm. Is globalisation still going to be the thing? Are we really going to be running around the planet um, in the same way that we were? Or are we going to find that in this huge amounts of downtime that we have, we're going to find things that actually do quite work well for us um, not going out quite as much to be used to. Um, and what impact does that have on the car industry, on car sales, on how you know, people go about their business in, in the car world and international racing? I mean, it's, it's an enormous subject and we can't begin for a moment to suppose that we have any of the answers. Um, but I can't imagine for a moment that, that even once this is done, we're not going to be somehow and quite fundamentally changed by it. I completely agree. So <clears throat> where are we now? We're, this is the... We're recording this on the 19th of March, and what have we had so far? We've had the start of the Formula One season delayed, the Australian Grand Prix cancelled. Um, we've and had Bahrain and Vietnam. Exactly. Le Mans pushed back to September. Le Mans pushed back to September. I think the N24 as well. Um, we've had multiple car factory shutdowns. Yeah. And that, that's open-ended as well. Yes. So the industry... The interesting, or perhaps the worrying thing about this from the industry's point of view, and we both accept that there are many, many more important things to consider than the state of the car industry during this whole crisis. Um, it, it was only two years ago that the whole WLTP thing happened throughout 2018, and certain manufacturers were almost brought down to their knees by that. I think um, Adrian Hallmark, Bentley CEO, has has said that for half the year... In half their markets, half their models weren't being correct sold. Yeah, they had a horrible time of it, and and, and so then just on that, I think Adrian will probably correct me, but I think the Continental GT was launched in eighteen. I don't think they sold any hmm. in America in two thousand and nineteen. That's an entire year's worth of production in your largest market that just didn't happen. They had a torrid time of it, and then in two thousand and nineteen, from a British point of view. There was a huge amount of uncertainty because of Brexit. Uh, and so off the back of WLTP, off the back of Brexit, all the car manufacturers were looking at 2020 as being the bounce back year where things would hopefully really get going again. And now that's all just been put back, who knows how long, by this, this horrible situation. Yeah, and I would say more than put back. I mean, I think that, you know, I fear that WLTP... Um, will appear like a, a minor inconvenience compared to mm. um, you know, the number of people in factories that um, may lose their jobs over this, um, the amount of revenues that um, companies, you know, companies like Aston Martin. Now, luckily, thanks to Lawrence Stroll, they've had you know a big injection of cash, which hopefully will um, shore them up for some time to come. Um, but these must be precarious times mm. um, for companies and. You know, we just have to keep our fingers crossed that they that they survive. And also, you know, I feel really, really sorry for companies like like Zinger, who you know, who are going to go to the Geneva show and launch this amazing new hypercar made out of you know three D printed mm. material, um, and they have been left completely high and dry yeah. uh, by this. Their big Yahoo moment, through absolutely no fault of their own, just ripped away from under their noses. 
Um, and, you know, I, 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 from what I can see from their social media, they seem to be a fairly resilient bunch and appear to be going about it in the right way. But, you know, it must be scary times for them and, and plenty of others. Absolutely. And the concerning thing is it's, it's not just an inconvenience or it's, it doesn't just set back their business plan. There's a very real chance that it does lasting damage. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It's so interesting hearing you talk, Andrew, about how this might change our mindset moving forward. And one thing that I just wanted to raise with you is you and I have both done this a lot. We'll fly, we'll be flown by a car manufacturer for a new car launch out to California or the Middle East or wherever it might be. I hope you're all feeling very sorry for us. Yeah, we're, we're fishing for sympathy here. But, but we're, we're going out there to drive cars that are built within 100 miles or 200 miles of where we live. Oh, we've done that, haven't we? Um, you know, so yes, it's you know it's five days, and, and you know, the idea obviously of going to California and spending five days, you know, driving around Laguna Seca or whatever, you know, no one's going to feel sorry for us. Um, but as freelance journalists, time is literally money. Um, we don't get paid to drive cars; we get paid to write about them. And so sometimes you thought, well, could we not just go to, you know, somewhere in the Midlands where these things are built? Um, and apparently that's not possible because they're not on the right fleet or they're not on the right part of the production schedule or whatever. So we have to go halfway around the world to, to, to drive them. Um, that kind of has to change, doesn't it? But then again, what, what do the people who are already halfway around, the, how do they get to drive the cars? Well, that's the thing. That is the thing. I, 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 I'm, I sometimes wonder if I should impose a personal rule on myself that I, I won't fly long haul to drive a car that's built within a three, four hour drive of my house, you know, I think, and I just wonder if the the results of this COVID-19 thing and people not traveling around quite so much is that people don't travel around quite so much, you know, do, are we going to change our attitudes to how we jet across the world for things that perhaps aren't entirely necessary? Yes, I think ultimately, yes. And in our business, I can think of no more likely candidate for that than the motor show. Mm. Um, You know, obviously motor shows have two you know, legs to them effectively. There's, there's obviously there's the press and the PR side of it, and then there's the customer side of it. And if it's a selling show, then I guess that there is still you know a good reason for having it. But you know, I have some idea of what it costs to put on a decent stand at a big international show, a Geneva um, or a Beijing or something like that, and it is millions and millions. Um, and I think, frankly, the whole debacle over Geneva, um, which has left a lot of manufacturers, um, you know, A, considerably out of pocket, but B, substantially cheesed off with what they feel has been some, um, what's the word? Uh, I don't think they feel they feel they have been well treated by uh, a show which they have supported for many, many years. And I think that it's just short-sighted because, you know, if, if you look at the big shows around the world, Detroit is a shadow of its former self. So is Tokyo. Um, Frankfurt is, isn't even happening next year. We wait to be told what sort of show it's going to be and where it's going to be. Paris is the list of no-shows at Paris just gets longer and longer every year. Um, and if I was Geneva, I would be doing everything in my power to make sure that the manufacturers were... Uh, reassured, reimbursed, uh, and kept as onside as humanly possible. Because I think these guys are looking for an excuse to give it up. Um, and it's possible they've just been given one. It's very interesting, isn't it? It, it? it would be a shame for me if if they all went under. If one had to survive, surely, though, it, it would be Geneva. Because it's, at the, it's towards the start of the new year. It's on neutral ground. It's in Europe, surrounded by a couple of dozen enormous OEMs. You know, it's it's a well-attended show. It's not too difficult to get around. It's actually one of the most uh, sort of accessible on foot as a as a visitor. Um, some of the other shows are enormous, but Geneva is not one. Do you think we could do away with all the others and hold on to Geneva and perhaps a couple of other regional ones? Or will they ultimately all have the same fate? I think ultimately, I think they need to get smaller and they need to get more affordable. Um, you know, I've just had a bit of a go at the show, but in fact, you know, the manufacturers are just as angry with, for instance, the hotel trade in Geneva, mm. who insist on you block booking rooms for a week, even if you may only need them for you know, a night or two. Um, and none of them are offering refunds. It's the same with people who have made expensive bookings at restaurants uh, and everything else. And I think that you know, the static motor show 
I mean, these things sort of came about, you know, in the 1930s because it was the only way the public got to see interesting new cars. Well, it's, you know, we're 70, 80 years further down the line than that. And, you know, and we have seen with things like the Goodwood Festival of Speed, just, you know, Goodwood, if you think about it, is geographically in a pretty terrible position for holding a motor show. It's down some tiny little lanes um, tucked away in the southeast corner of England. Um, and yet, you know, people flock to it. Manufacturers spend a lot of money because people can get to the cars. They see them actually in action. It's a, it's a very convivial way of doing it. And at the end of the day, you can go home and look it all up again on the Internet and watch you know, every run happen all over again. All this stuff you just can't do at a conventional show. And, and you know, my view is that you know, I will continue to go to shows while I'm required to, while there's business to be done there. Um, but to me, they're an anachronism. I think, I think mm. the world's just moved on. Apart from everything else, apart from all the damage this, this situation will do, it might also be the catalyst for some change that has been quite slow coming. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, a few boring old farts like me have been banging on about this for, for a while now. Um, and again, you can't prejudge any situation. And, you know, the industry is, is absolutely fantastic at, you know, failing to learn lessons. And, you know, in a year's time, it may be Groundhog Day and we're all back again. And it's like it never happened. But this is so big. This is so different. Um, these waters are entirely uncharted. And, and as I said earlier, I'd be very surprised if, you know, cash strap manufacturers, as they all will be, big mm. or small, by the end of this, aren't going to be looking very, very carefully at everything they spend. And if there's any question mark over anything, um, you know, I know that lots of manufacturers very creatively had virtual motor shows where they launched cars online from their own you know, head offices. And they will have um, the metrics on that. They will know how many people tuned in. They will know, they will be able to compare directly what the response to that has been compared to the response of doing a show. I'm sure it will be down. But if it's not down by as much as it costs to put on a show, then maybe you'll think, well, that's the way we'll do it in the future. Well, there we go. If there, were, if there was any other news in the car industry at the moment, we'd discuss it now. But there isn't any. Uh, no. <laughs> that's just about it, isn't it? So let's move on to the second part of the podcast, which is where we deep dive a handful of our recent Drive Nation posts. Now, Andrew, I've pulled out one in particular for you because it got such a, such a great response and people just loved reading about your adventure in 1993, I think it was, in a Ford Mondeo. Oh, God, yes. So can you remind us, please, what that was all about? Yeah, so I, mean, I actually, I, I thought twice about writing it just because um, it was so illegal. Um, <laughs> and, and 27 years on, you, you still sort of think that there's going to be some gendarme somewhere who's going to be going, you know, he's just tuned into this thing he's heard of called Drive Nation. And, and he goes on and he, and he reads that and he th- I don't know, I don't know. It was, Is there a statute of limitations on speed? I, I hope so, I hope so. I could, of course, be lying about all of it as well. Mm. Um, it, could not work, it could all be entirely untrue. Believe me, if anybody ever knocks my door, that's what I'll be saying. <laughs> um, okay, so um, if you've not seen it on Drive Nation, this was in a bit of context. So in 1993, Ford were making some really rubbish cars. The Sierra was at the end of its life. The Mark IV Escort, my goodness, what a, um, yes, a heap of um, rubbish that was. Um, and we'd, on Autocar, we'd been giving them a kicking and a very well-deserved kicking for a very long time. And then they came up with this thing called the Mondeo, which they said was going to be the next big thing. Um, and I didn't really believe it. Well, I didn't believe it until they, the, the launch was uh, in Saint-Tropez in, I think, January of 1993. And they rang up and they said, would you like us to send a lorry round onto which you can load all this car's competitors and we'll take it to the south of France for you? Now, I've never heard a manufacturer do that before or since. Um, and you wouldn't do that unless you were absolutely, utterly... Con- I mean, manufacturers hate people turning up at their launches with rival cars anyway. And there they were offering to pay to get the rival cars there. So that made me think, mm, okay, this could be different. And then when we got there, uh, instead of the usual, you know, half a dozen marketing men, um, you know, just spouting a very well-rehearsed script, there were engineers all over the place, none of them having been told what they could or could not say to us. And so kind of before we drove the car, we knew it was going to be a bit different. And it did. It kind of completely changed that and then the focus changed the way that Ford is perceived uh, in the UK, in Europe, and to an extent around the world. Um, but we still felt, felt the need to subject this Monday to some kind of ultimate test. And 
someone, I, I'd like to think me, possibly me, can't remember, um, had the idea of driving this car 10,000 miles uh, and doing it in a week, a proper marathon. And it was obvious to us early on you couldn't do that in the UK for all sorts of reasons. And so we had um, teams of people just drive relays uh, around Europe. So what you'd do is a new team would get, would park a car in Dover, get on um, the ferry to France, um, pick up the Mondeo from whoever had just done their stint. They'd then go back to Dover, collect the car that had been left from them while the new team headed off around Europe doing whatever it was they were doing. Um, and the idea is that um, I was the road test editor at the time. My deputy was Steve Sutcliffe, who I'm sure will be known to very many of you. Um, and that I think Steve had done a few earlier legs as well. Um, but certainly the only involvement I had was for the sort of the glory leg, the anchor leg. Um, and what we didn't expect was for everyone to have done so well that by the time we got into it for the final 24 hours, um, there was just 326 miles to do. Um, which was no kind of challenge at all, obviously. And then one of us, again, I hope me, but knowing him, probably Steve, said, we could do 12,000 miles. 12,000 <laughs> miles back then, and this is the way that we kind of thought about it, was the average annual mileage of a person with a car. That's what they did. And we thought it would be quite cool to drive a car as far in one week as a person would normally drive it in a year. Um, I think it's London to Auckland, almost exactly. Wow. Or London to Tokyo and back is another way I looked at it. Um, and, you know, this, was a, this, this wasn't a, like a, you know, a 24 valve 3 litre. This was a 1.6 litre, 90 horsepower Mondeo L saloon. It was absolutely as bargain basement as Mondeo's got then. Um, and, you know, I think we did the maths and I think we realised we had to average 97. I think we knew that there was basically no chance of doing it but let me just clarify that's 97 miles per hour they had to average yeah. with fuel stops inclusive, with toilet breaks inclusive of everything <laughs> literally from the moment we got into the car at that 24 hours yeah 97 miles an hour 97 yeah. point something anyway um so i don't think for a moment that either of us thought we could do it but frankly the alternative was just getting bored stiff and going home and and and, and in briefly being journalists thinking that the last leg of this story, the heroic, there was going to be, you know, we drive it the equivalent distance to sort of Manchester and back, which just, I mean, I just didn't want the story to end that way. So we just, so we just, um, yeah, we embarked on this insane jaunt, promptly ran out of fuel. Steve had put a jerry can in the boot, thank God, so that didn't delay us too much. Um, and yeah, we averaged, we did Calais to Lyon in four hours. Uh, we were in Montpellier two hours after that. I think we averaged 104, because we started in the evening, so we did this all at night. We averaged 104 on a car with a top speed of probably not much more than 114, I would think, I don't know, um, from Calais to the south of France. Um, the fuel stops were quite good fun because you're only allowed to pee every other stop. <laughs> um, so the deal was that one that, person... That would be a problem for me. Well, you could have taken a catch tank with you. We, we didn't need to do that, actually. Not, we, not once did anybody that I'm aware of relieve themselves actually <laughs> in the car. Um, but no, but the deal was, was that, you, I mean, don't forget, we were, going, we were getting through the, through the gas quite quickly. So okay. we were stopping quite often. Um, because even, uh, I think we got to do 14 to the gallon. Nice. Yeah. That's good going. That was good going. Um, so, um, yeah, the deal was one person filled, the other peed, grabbed sandwiches, Red Bull or whatever you had back then, um, and then waited for a thumbs up from the bloke doing the filling. They then paid immediately, ran back out of the car, and off you went. And uh, as I think I said in the piece in Drive Nations, there were stops where you get in the car, redline it through first, second, third, and fourth, turn into fifth, <laughs> put your foot down, and the next time you'd lift would be for the next fuel station. Um, and yeah, and um, I was trying to remember. And it was one of the joys of Drive Nation is the pieces are so short you don't have the space to put this sort of stuff in. I was trying to remember where we actually went. Because mm. I know we obviously went from Calais to the south of France by the traditional route. And I know we went to Bordeaux. And I know we were in Clermont-Ferrand at one stage. And I know we were very worried about traffic in Lyon. So we must have been to Lyon at least twice because on the way down we would have been there in the middle of the night. So that wouldn't have bothered us. And I know that we overshot considerably on the way back because... Um, 
yeah, we just hadn't done enough miles. We thought we'd get back to Calais at 12,000 miles. We hadn't. So I think we had to turn around and go halfway back to Reims. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing was just made up on the spot. <laughs> um, but the absolute God's honest truth, um, which no one believes, and I completely accept that that's fine because I wouldn't believe it myself, but it, but it is true, is that we did it with 90 seconds to spare. Unbelievable. The 23 tooth. hours, 58 and a half minutes. Yeah. We did our 2,000. So we did 2,326 miles in 24 hours. It, yeah, okay. So you just scraped it. We uh, scraped it, yeah. We absolutely scraped it. And, and you'd think we'd be whooping for joy at the end of it and, you know, mm. slapping ourselves on the butt. I think we just looked appalled. <laughs> um, because once you embark on something like that, um, particularly if you've got a character like Steve, um, who is, is a fairly sort of never-say-die kind of bloke, mm. you don't want to be the one who pulls the pin and say, no, nah, come on, this is really stupid. We really, really shouldn't be. I mean, what are we doing here? It's just a bloody car magazine. It's just a story. You know, we'll make it up. We'll protect... Not the sort of conversations that you can, that you can really have. And neither of us want to be the one to go, this really is stupid. And so by the end of it, when it was over, it, was, it wasn't even relief. It was just... The only relief was, thank God, I'll never have to do anything like this ever again. I bet. I haven't, and I won't. Okay, so I want to know much more. What, what state was the car in after those 12,000 miles? Um, in, you can imagine we didn't have time to wash it or anything. In fact, we didn't want to wash it. We wanted to photograph a really clean car at the beginning and a really grimy one at the end. So in terms of the way it looked, it looked horrendous. As you can imagine, it had a year's worth of grime on it. Mm. Um, but it was going really well. I'm um, sure it was nicely run in by the end was, of that. It was superb. It had done 500 miles when it got to us. I think it had just had its first oil. I think they just chased the oil and chucked it at us. Um, and back then, servicing intervals were much shorter. Um, and um, we went straight past that. We, I remember we had to get someone to call Ford to ask them when we knew we were going to go past 10,000 miles, whether we could blow it service at all by 2,000 miles, and they weren't bothered at all, so we did that. Um, and yeah, it was just really, really crisp. It revved all the way through to the red line, which wouldn't do very happily right at the beginning. Um, gearbox had loosened up. It was a really nice car. And they, um, they did, what did they do with it? So Ford took it back and immediately took it back to Dunton and stripped it because they were interested to see what an engine that had been subjected to that kind of pressure. Um, I can't remember, but I did calculate how long the car was stationary for in that week. Um, and it was couple of hours or something like that. Well, that's that. it. It's simply not resting, is it, for no, 12,000 miles? Absolutely. And it was, you know, it was pretty much, I mean, some teams were a bit more sensible. Well, some, every team was more sensible than us, but some teams were more sensible than others and just went quite quickly. Some teams, I mean, there's one team that did 10 countries, uh, another team that went to the far end of Portugal. And, I mean, you know, just crazy, <laughs> crazy stuff. Um, so Ford wanted to have a look at it, and they did. Um, it then went to the National Motor Museum. Mm. It had its own little display for a bit. And then I think some idiot sold it. Um, somebody actually responded to um, the story on DN and said that it had had a, an MOT up until um, 2007. Amazing. And then clearly it's just gone off to the scrapper like yeah. any other car. Put in a good shift though. Put in a good shift, yeah. But gosh, I'd like, to, I'd like it still to be out there. So I'm really intrigued to know, how honest were you in the auto car story at the time about that final stint 2000 and something miles the only lie we told um and we were told to tell this lie um, was that we took a third person with us because we just thought even in 1993 that it's just you can't own up to two people having done that because you can imagine how much <laughs> sleep either of us got steve and i used to do some really quite stupid stuff together um i can remember we once Peter Robinson, Autocar's one-time very, very esteemed European editor, otherwise known in my view as the greatest motoring journalist who's ever been born, used to live in Brescia. Um, and he always used in, to... In Italy. In Italy. And he always used to be very proud of how long it, he could drive, it took him to drive from Brescia to the office in Teddington. Um, and we were going to see him. In fact, we were going to go and chase the Millimilia. And Steve and I... Um, managed to get a Dodge Viper for this, an early car, a roadster. Um, and we picked it up from the importers in Dover, where we realised we had the choice of, we could take our luggage or the roof, but not both. <laughs> um, so in the end, we left the roof behind and 
went out and chased one of the wettest Miller Millias that there's ever been in a Viper without a roof. But that's maybe a story for another podcast. Um, but we did um, drive this Viper overnight through France quite quickly, sufficiently quickly that we did Calais to Italy in six hours. Wow. Um, but in fact, that was far more relaxed than the Mondeo because we were never driving it flat out. We always had something up our sleeves, mm. whereas the Mondeo was just as fast as you can go. Those days are long gone, aren't they? I mean, I mean, part of my reticence about posting the story was I can't, you know, it's almost a dream. It's, you know, it's really quite hard. If you, if you think about doing that today, A, the traffic wouldn't allow you to do it. B, obviously, the consequences of getting caught to it are, are, are unimaginable. Um, and actually, being briefly sensible, I just think it was a really stupid thing to do. Mm. Um, the Mondeo thing in particular. Um, and I look back, and as I said, you know, I use the word appalled you know, advisedly, I am, there's clearly quite a large chunk of me that's, that's, that's quite proud of it and um, <laughs> probably um, inappropriately proud of it. But there's another bit of me which just thinks, you bloody idiots, something really bad could have happened. Uh, it's, it's a great story. I'm, I'm glad you posted about it on DN, but it, it's not something you'd, you'd try now, is it? I mean, I wouldn't. It, uh, an amazing post. Got a really good response to that one. Um, and uh, so let's move on to another post that got a good, a good response. Um, Aston Martin released some images of the Valkyrie um, testing on the public road for yeah. the first time. Yeah. Now, I, the, the Valkyrie situation is interesting. There were some whispers a few weeks ago that Aston was struggling to homologate the car so much that it might not be made road legal. Well, anyone who is peddling that rumour has been made to look a little bit daft. Yeah. So, fair play to Aston Martin on that one. Um, now, now, what did you think of the way the car looked on the road? Did you, you, you must have seen the pictures. Yeah, I saw the pictures. Um, yeah, it's just the number plate, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, the, the front number plate is a, a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. It's, um, cars always look different on the road, don't they? Mm. Um, suddenly, they get a context, yep. um, which they never have. Um, even when you see them on a racetrack where it's just all big, wide open spaces, because we've all seen about going around Silverstone and that sort of thing, but particularly on motor shows um, mm. where they are complete fishless out of water. And suddenly on the road, I just thought it looked really cool. Mm. I just thought, you know, obviously it's been a very different thing um, and moving the game on and, um, and you know, this sort of once in a generation car like the McLaren F1 was. But I've only really visually logged onto it in quite that way once I saw those pictures. I just I thought it looked absolutely amazing. It looked mm. like something from outer space. It looked like some, you know, some crazy you know insect from some dystopian future come to visit us on planet Earth in 2020. It was, it was an amazing looking thing. And it's completely churlish, of course, to point out that the front number plate looks a bit daft. Um, and I suppose what owners are going to do is remove it and pay the fine. Of course, that's that's what they'll do. So it's not going to be a problem. No, it's not going to be a problem at all. How many sleepless nights do you think Adrian Newey has? stressing over the number plate placement and the effect that has on aero oh massive <laughs> massive um from what i know of adrian um and from what i have heard from aston martin of what he is like to work for i mean there's a there's perfectionism and then there's adrian newey neweyism yeah a neweyism and um you know, he doesn't like to be bothered by things. Well, no, he is bothered by... You know, he looks at the rules and the regulations in a completely different way to normal people. Normal people look at rules and regulations and they think, well, these are things which we need to comply with. And he <laughs> looks at them in terms of things where we absolutely need to not comply with these, but to do so in a way that we can't get pinged for. Um, it's that Formula One mindset, isn't it? Yeah. It's not breaking the rules, it's just... Bending them, and, 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 and that's how Newey has, you know, his genius, is that, that's what he has done right through his career. And, you know, I think, you know, so, I think some race car designers, um, sort of Colin Chapman and that sort of thing, are real sort of freehand artists, and they have amazing ideas, and they come up with these incredible innovations um, that have never been done before in that field, um, and would therefore benefit from a very, very open set of regulations. And then there are guys like Adrian, who the thicker the rule book, the, the better they get because mm. there's just more stuff for them to get into and think, well, okay, that's going to hold them back because they won't have thought about doing it this way. And then that's what Adrian does. And that's why I'm, I'm really excited about Valkyrie um, because I know it's an irrelevance and I know that it's, <sighs> it's a rich man's play thing. But I just love 
anything which does stuff which hasn't been done before. Absolutely agree. And I think it is, you know, again, all, you know, I, I wrote the road test on the McLaren F1 back in whenever it was, 94. Um, and that the, was, the only magazine road test of the McLaren yeah, F1. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was quite a big campaign because you know, we were the only magazine doing proper road tests at the time. I mean, Autocar would certainly argue that that remains the case. Um, you know, I don't know anybody else who goes to anything like that level of rigour to get objective data on cars in the world of motoring journalism in the UK, certainly. Um, and so our pitch to McLaren was not, can we do this? It was, we have to do this. You know, we are the only people who can do this. You need a set of objective numbers and, you know, who else are you going to go to? Um, and because Gordon gets it, um, you know, that's what happened. Um, so that, that 0 to 60, 0 to 62 time? 0 to 60, 3.2 seconds. That's your time? Yeah. I could, see, I've, I've known of that 3.2 second figure for... No, it was, it, it, last year, it was 25 years since you did it, wasn't yes, it? Yes, exactly. It was 1994. I'll tell you the day. It was May the 2nd, 1994. And I know that exactly. only because of the day after Senna got killed. Yes. Yeah, there we go. So, I, yeah, I absol- I've known of that 3.2 second figure for 20-odd years, 20-plus years. Yeah. And that's your time. Not to 106.3, not to 228. Um, all I would say is we had to patch it slightly, only because... You can't do, you know, Millbrook is where you'd normally go to do those sorts of numbers. Um, but you can't do 200 miles an hour at Millbrook. And we needed a not 200 time. Um, and so the only way place we could get at the time a not 200 time was at Bruntingthorpe. Yeah. Um, but the surface at Bruntingthorpe then as now was rubbish. And you'd never get, I mean, I think we tried it. Um, and I was driving it and John the Palmer was driving it. And we were getting sort of late threes early fours maybe I mean the car was way off I mean the first gear was basically redundant Um, and so what we did do and I think this is legitimate and fine is we did I can't remember where we split it but I think we did naught to whatever we could do at Millbrook 140 and then just took the 140 to 200 times from Bruntingthorpe and spliced them on the top Um, which is I think entirely legitimate because they were all runs were done in two directions on a level surface, so yeah, um, that's fine. I defend that, but yeah. So it's really interesting that <clears throat> I had in my notes that I wanted to ask you about having spoken to you about the Valkyrie. I wanted to ask you about the McLaren F1. I didn't even have to prompt you; you went there anyway, because quite rightly, Valkyrie seems like the spiritual successor to the McLaren F1, the only car that really merits that comparison. It, it is. It? it is that once in a generation car. Um, and, you know, the only other contender, I guess, is the, what are we calling it these days, the Mercedes AMG 1, the, what was the Project 1. Um, but, um, you know, I, I know they're having problems with that car, yeah. with homologating it. And given that they're trying to homologate a 1,000 horsepower, 1.6 litre Formula 1 engine, then, you know, um, and presumably they have to WLTP that as well. Oh, unbelievable. Which is an entire... You know, world of pain they wouldn't have envisaged at the get-go. Um, so I completely understand and sympathise why that might be quite late. And I did ask um, the new boss of Mercedes-Benz, Ola Kalenius, when we had a telephone interview at Geneva, um, where things were with that car and when we're going to see it. And he was, in, in, in his very charming way, um, he just sort of sidestepped it and said, it'll appear when it's ready to appear. Mm. And I said, there hasn't been much noise about it. And he said, the car makes lots of noise. <laughs> um, sure. Less once it's been WLTP'd. Yeah, well, maybe. Um, so, um, you know, Valkyrie is on the road. Um, you know, that is also, it, is, it has been delayed, but I don't think to the same extent. Mm. And it's with customers before the end of the year? Apparently so. Apparently so. Um, and I, I, so I guess, like all of us, um, I just hope we get to drive it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we're quite used to seeing new cars come along and looking forward to the day that we get behind the wheel. Um, I'm not sure that necessarily applies to the Valkyrie. I mean, they're, they're not going to do a, a launch with a load of motoring press at Portimao, are they? I mean, it's, no, no, it's no, going to be a no, totally not. different... I, I, I've no idea what they're going to do. Um, I mean, all the cars, I understand it, are gone. Um, you know, I, th- I think that there is, I'm afraid, I think there is an argument for not even doing a launch um, mm. because then you keep, you keep it mysterious and you, and you maintain that mystique. Um, I hope they don't buy that argument because um, mm-hmm. that would be sad. I, I'm, sure now, I'm sure that they will do a very, very limited program. I mean, yeah. clearly they're going to want it on Top Gear. 
Yes. Um, clearly, they're going to want, you know, Clarkson and that lot um, to have sight of it. Um, and hopefully, you know, one or two of the key motoring media. Mm. Um, <laughs> we know of an interesting uh, Instagram project. The, yes. With two, yes. two founders who yes. would be delighted to spare some time. Absolutely, yes. I can confirm my availability on that date <laughs> whenever that date may be. <laughs> okay. Um, um, so we, there's one more post that I want to ask about. But before that, I want to ask you one more question. You spoke about the road test on the McLaren F1. Who was present on that day? Uh, there were a few people from the magazine, but from McLaren, there was Gordon Murray, there was Jonathan Palmer. Um, Ron definitely wasn't there. Um, there were obviously some technicians around. We had two F1s. We actually we actually used three F1s um, for the road test. So there was XP4, uh, which was a blue prototype, um, which we used for the numbers. There was XP5. Um, which was the last prototype, which is the car that McLaren still has, and which I very, very, very luckily managed to drive quite recently, um, which we used for all the road assessments and all the photography. And then for some reason, they wanted another car for the cover shoot. Mm. Um, And so days later, I went down to the Long Cross test track in Chobham, and they produced a customer car, which I think was chassis 003, and I just did the cover there on that. Um, yeah, so what was your question? Who was present on the day? Uh, who because was present? So the, that, the fascinating thing is, this is the day after Ayrton Senna was killed. McLaren's yes. most famous driver won three world championships with the team. Yes. The most famous racing driver probably there has ever been. The day after he was killed, you were doing this. The man who designed his championship winning cars. Jonathan Palmer, and you know, Jonathan will tell you that Ayrton was his absolute hero. I mean... There's professionalism and there's professionalism. I mean, you know, it, obviously he died on a Sunday. I mean, I turned up um, to Brunting Thought the following morning, probably more than half expecting them not to be there. Mm. But I hadn't had a call. I didn't want to call because I didn't want to jinx it. And they were, you know, they were just completely professional. We sort of mumbled out, you know, how sorry we were and that sort of thing. Um, and we were all... Um, absolutely devastated mm. um and it's a weird thing well it, it, it is for me at least because you know there are drivers that i admire today the drivers i really like i mean i admire lewis hugely who, who wouldn't i like guys like max and leclerc because they've got sort of fighting spirit but i didn't and it might be an age thing it may be because back then they lived in a more difficult dangerous time but i didn't sort of you know they weren't these guys today they're not my heroes mm. I don't idolise them. But Senna, all of us in the autocar office, um, we were absolutely not for six by it. Um, hardly any of us, any of us had, 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 ever, had ever met him. Um, and yet we all felt his passing in a way that, you know, certainly in my career in motoring journalism, there, there's not been anything, anything like it. Mm. And there were the McLaren guys who, you know, who knew this bloke like a brother. And there they were the next day with the car, doing what they said they would do, getting through it and it was yeah it was profoundly impressive it really is a measure of all those blokes isn't it incredible really okay so let's move on to the final post that i want to talk about the final part of this podcast um and it's a huge story actually andrew has driven the new defender land rover defender and we can now talk about it he can tell you what it's like so andrew i'm going to sit back cross my arms and just listen golly okay um so, Defender. Um, everybody comes at it from a different direction, don't they? I mean, I've got um, friends who live in London and they've got a Defender and I don't think it's ever been outside the M25. Yeah. That's just... They've got a short wheelbase, nicely kitted out, um, 90 station wagon, and they just tool around London in it because, uh, well, certainly until the ULEZ came in, that was kind of, you know, what they wanted to do. It was purely a... A fashion accessory. And then there's me. I mean, I still have the 1981 Series 3 in which I pass my test in my shed. And I still use it most weeks. And it's, you know, it's very much still the working vehicle it was designed to be. Um, And so, you know, you have those two poles and you try and design a car to keep both happy. Exactly right. Um, You can't do it. Also, one which is compliant. Yeah. Yeah, which crashes um, the way that it should crash. 
not the way that Series <laughs> 3s crash. Um, you just can't do it. So, you know, I always thought it was the ultimate poison chalice. Um, and I kind of... I couldn't understand how they were going to square that circle. Um, and I think they have been quite exceptionally clever because what they have done effectively is come up with a new defender but they've actually replaced two cars because the overwhelming thought that I had was not actually whether this deserves to be you know thought of as being the new defender because it is so different because it rides and it handles and it stops and it steers and it behaves like you know a modern car should behave so in all those regards it's nothing like a defender and anybody who is kind of hoping that it would be somehow, um, is just deluding itself because that's literally not possible and certainly not desirable. Um, but it does have character. Not defend the character because I think that's gone these days. Mm. Um, you know, cars like that, and it's the reason people love classic cars and me as much as any of them, um, their character derives from them not being very good cars. And they need your help. You have to get involved. You know, you have to constantly correct their steering. Maybe their brakes don't work very well. Maybe it's, they're difficult to change gear or, or whatever. You're always doing stuff. You're always managing the vehicle. You're always, that means you're stuck in and you're involved. And that's where the character comes from. You don't do any of that stuff in modern cars. Mm. Point and square. So, you know, how do you engineer that character in, into a brand new car like a Defender? Um, and I think that as far as you could reasonably expect them to have done, that is what they have done. Mm. And I think that it does as much as it could replace the old Defender. But I think more importantly, and this is the second car I'm talking about, all those people who took one look at the Discovery 5, you know, when, when owning their Discovery thoughts and thought, well, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I thought I was buying into. That's not a Discovery. Well, it's now called Defender. Mm. You know, you could buy a tricked up, long wheelbase. You get a Defender with a 3-litre petrol engine in it. You know, and you'll pay 75 grand for that, but you could, you, know, you could drop 75 grand into the Discovery without too much trouble. And you'll get a car that is, you know, quiet, um, well-equipped, um, but still a proper workhorse. Mm. Or you could do what I would do and just get literally a poverty-spec, short-wheel-based car on steel wheels uh, and just go yomping in it. Um, and it would still be good enough to, you know go as far as you like for as long as you like and not get on your nerves it's interesting and you've driven it off-road as well and i think you said it was pretty exceptional in the, the yeah it was exceptional i mean you always sort of you know first you know this is this is just old road testing uh, procedure you always look at the data first um and the data is you know if you look at approach angles departure angles breakover angles wading all that sort of stuff um it's wading depth is 900 millimeters which is as good as any other land rover in every other respect it's better Mm. Um, it'll just do more stuff but when you drive it off road I mean I've been over the toughest things um, the Eastner Castle where they develop these cars can offer places which the chap who was with me was saying that if you tried 20 years ago you'd need a military vehicle and a winch before you were even thinking about going in there um, what was far more impressive to me was um, how easy it made it you know it's possible, I suppose, that if you're a professional off-road driver, you could get an old Defender up some of those muddy, rock-strewn, mm. root-strewn um, hills. Don't know. Um, but with the Defender, what it does, um, and, and the, 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 this might sound a little bit antiseptic and clinical, but um, it's the speed at which it thinks. So when you've got to that bit where you lose traction and the car, you can feel the car slowing down and you can feel the car's systems thinking, oh shit, maybe a little bit more torque there, uh, maybe break that wheel, and all the time you're slowing down. The Defender doesn't do that. It thinks so fast. It just stays ahead of the curve. And so you never lose that momentum. So you keep going. You're never aware of the car grappling with a problem. It just does it. Um, and... I couldn't believe what it would go over. Mm. Um, you know, it was, and it has to be, doesn't it? I mean, God, come on. I mean, you know, it'd be, it would be like, you know, Ferrari coming up with a new LaFerrari, which wasn't quite as fast as the old one. I mean, yes. you know, you know, it, 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 you know, job one was to make sure that it would be the most capable off-roader 
probably anybody had ever produced, certainly the Land Rover ever produced. And, you know, I'm no off-roading expert. But from what I've... I mean, I have never done off-roading in a car more extreme than that. And I've certainly never been more comfortable in a car while doing off-roading as extreme as that. So, yeah, it does that. And then it marries that remarkable off-road ability with uh, pretty civilised on-road manners, personally. Yeah, I mean, as... um, you will read, depending on when you are listening to this or have read, um, I was asked, um, because understandably the PR man couldn't help himself, what I thought of it. And literally the words that came to my mind was, I'm a bit worried it's not quite shit enough. Um, <laughs> and, and, and this sort of harks back to what I was saying about the involvement thing and old cars and that sort of thing. Because, you know, it is the sort of car that you want to get stuck into and... I'm sure that if you if you spend a lot of money and you've got the big petrol engine and lots of equipment, you could have an incredibly civilised Defender. A, a, a Defender, which was probably, in most ways that matter, um, you know, not a lot less civilised than a Discovery. Mm. Um, but I, funnily enough, I drove it both on the all-season and on the all-terrain proper off-road tyres on the road. And I just preferred it on the road on the off-road tyres because it was just a bit more wobbly and a bit more vague... Uh, and it felt a bit more like I kind of remember Defenders feeling. Mm, okay, um, a bit more distinctive, a bit more character. A bit more distinctive, a bit more character. A bit worse, clearly. Yeah, yeah. A bit more shit. Mm. Um, but that's all right. So overall then, the, the job they've done on the new Defender, smashed it? Yeah. Could do more? Well, God knows, no car's perfect. Um, they could do lots more. Um, it doesn't have, you know, I, I was kind of hoping that there'd be some, you know, a, my old series three it's got you know it's got levers and handles and all sorts of that and i and i would have liked to have seen some more of that on the defender um it doesn't really have very chunky switch gear it's got tft screens Mm. you know high definition screens i just want clocks now (laughs) i know that you know these things aren't very practical um in the modern era and you've got to use stuff that you can use across all your platforms but i would have just preferred a little bit more of a head nod to that sort of thing but, you know, within reason and given the, frankly, almost impossible job that they're asking it to do, yeah, I would say not beyond my wildest dreams, but as good as I think any reasonable person could hope and expect it to be. I'm so looking forward to driving this car. Um, I haven't done so yet. Can you give us a, a rating out of 10? I think I gave it a 9. Sorry. I mean, goodness knows, I wanted to give it a 10. I was kind of really thinking, can I, can I? Because it would only be the second one that we'd ever done. Yeah. Um, for those people who are not familiar with the Instagram Drive Nation, uh, like all people who review cars, we have a, um, a verdict and a rating. Um, but our ratings are a bit different insofar as if you're absolutely the best car in your category, you may still only get a 9. Um, to get a 10 you need to change the game you need to be do it in a completely different way and in a way that genuinely sheds proper light on whatever discipline it is that you're attempting and so far the Alpine A110 is the only car that we have tested which we felt deserved that and yeah the defense I'd love to I got goodness knows I'd love to give them that a 10 um, <laughs> but no sorry okay nine well that means it's still a remarkable car and it's interesting that you should mention the Alpine A110 because as I look over my shoulder through the window, I can see my own Alpine A110. Oh. <laughs> we'll save that one for the next podcast. Um, but we'll, we'll leave it there for now. That's, that's our Drive Nation pilot podcast done and dusted. Andrew, thank you. Not at all. Uh, it, it's, it's been fun. Frankly, it's been more fun than I thought it was going to be. Um, but you're much more averse um, in tune with these things than I am. Um, and you know all i would say is please bear with us this was our first stab at it obviously there was a lot of introductory stuff we had to get out of the way first um and by the time we sit down to do this again if that's what you want us to do we'll have lots more um ideas from you of stuff that you want us to be talking about um and hopefully we will be better at it but um i certainly enjoyed it yeah absolutely to do i just hope you guys think it was a worthwhile thing to do as well exactly right so the, the important thing now really is feedback from you guys. So let us know what you think, uh, good and bad. Also, it, it, this stuff really does matter. Um, please leave a little review on whatever podcast um, app or platform you use. Positive reviews, I mean. Give us, give us a rating. <laughs> there aren't going to be any negative ones. <laughs> give us a rating, please. Tell your friends. 
let us know what you think about this podcast. If you if you enjoyed it, we'll really seriously look at making it a regular thing. But for now, thank you, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye from me. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 